Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It was a nervous Tanya Harding who admitted today she did not immediately report everything she knew about the attack on her rival, Nancy Kerrigan. Kurt Cobain's body was found inside a garage apartment adjacent to his Seattle home dead of an apparently self-inflicted shotgun wound. Police say a suicide note was nearby. The bodies of Simpson's ex-wife, Nicole Brown Simpson, and Ronald Goldman were discovered early Monday morning. Later, a police forensics team began a search of the crime scene and O.J. Simpson's home. Investigators removed several pieces of evidence from both properties. This is the Decibel Geek Podcast with Aaron Camaro and Chris Simpson. All right, here we go. Welcome back. Once again, it's Decibel Geek Podcast time. I'm Aaron Camaro and uh, Chris Sinzak. Chris? Yeah. I'm going to need you to put down that number two pencil. You, sir, are out of time. Yeah, okay. I'm about to stab it through my jugular vein. <laughs> <laughs> yep, time for homework is through, and it is time for our year in review. Rock and roll style right here on the Decibel Geek Podcast 1994. Yeah, this is uh, a special year for Aaron and I because Aaron and I, well, I think we we're both just basically getting out of high school around this yeah, time. Yeah, for sure. He was, you were a year ahead of me. So this was uh, this is right in the wheelhouse of music listening. So I know a number of people, when they heard we were going to do this episode, had said, 1994, was there anything good released in 94? Are you going to play like three songs? Oh, man. And we aim to change your mind. Yeah, so. we've done a lot of homework, and there's actually a whole a whole lot of great music that came out in 1994. And At least in our opinion. Yeah, <laughs> so. you know, and so today you're going to find out. Yeah, so um, as you heard in the intro song, that is a uh, artist called Buckethead. And yeah. if you don't know who Buckethead is, he actually played guitar with one of the iterations of Guns N' Roses. And, yeah, he sure um, did. He wears a Michael Myers mask and wears a KFC bucket on his head, and he never speaks. Right. So that's Buckethead. thought it was interesting. Hell of a guitar player. Oh, yeah, yeah. So before we jump into 1994, I got to do Geeks of the Week. Yeah, um, you got a list. So all of, all of you who have shared on Facebook and retweeted on Twitter the link for last week's Radio Sucks episode. Which, which we got a lot of great response yeah, on. People seem to really enjoy it. So Facebook, well, first person that uh, shared the link on Facebook was the Eastside Gamblers. Nice. So really appreciate them. You heard them on the show last week. Go buy some of their stuff. They're really good. Great band. Uh, Derek Novak, Matt Ashcraft, Jason Thomas Broderick, who owns JTB's Groovy Record Room. Stop in there if you get a chance. Absolutely. We'll be going there in a couple of weeks. Uh, Gino Ames, Chris Karam Union shared the link. Nice. Which awesome. Which I thought was really cool. Very cool. And uh, a page called Heavy Rock. It's a really good rock and roll page. Yeah, those guys are very cool over there. I love that page. For Twitter, not not too many, but some cool people. Steve. Thank you, Steve. Music Mags and Wax. The Pretty Filth. John Karabi. And, right on. And Collins, who shares it every week and had some really kind words to say on the Twitter page. So cool. Also, you could be we, also Sharon Needles from Betty Blowtorch. Oh, she did. Yep. Oh, and uh, Judy Kokuza. Judy who? Kokuza. Interesting. So, yeah. So thank you to all of you, your Geeks of the Week. You could be Geek of the Week, too, uh, just by sharing or retweeting the link to this episode next mm-hmm. week. Exactly. Simple as that. You get mentioned on the show. We make you famous. All right. You ready to put all this hard work to use? about time <laughs> all right well start us out as we always start our years in review all right the facts and figures that i have for 1994 part one uh average monthly rent 1994 533 dollars cost of a gallon of gas was a dollar and nine cents wow i miss that i do too a loaf of bread was a dollar 59 i just bought a loaf of bread for 99 cents the other day so i don't know what happened there hmm. um I didn't. I couldn't find the price of bacon this time. No, no. I don't know what happened. <laughs> People are too busy eating it to report it. Exactly. Yeah. So, but those are the facts and figures for. All right. Well, we're talking. Half. We're talking about 1994. I can't think of a better place to start than Dick Clark's New Year's Rockin' Eve, featuring the likes of Barry Manilow, Brooks and Dunn, Daryl Hall, and Kiss. So the first time that uh, Hall and Oates and Kiss have shared a bill. I don't know. Because they're going to be sharing in a, in a few yeah. weeks here. Future Hall of Famers. That's right. 
Uh, Kiss is on the show. They perform rock and roll all night, of course. Yeah. But they also play Making Love. Yeah, that took me by surprise when they came back and played that. 1994 is a big kickoff of Kiss nostalgia. Yeah, and uh, although it was not a... Not a fun day for Gene and Paul, apparently, as we watched before we jumped no, on the mics here. that was an amazing thing. I've never seen that before. An interview earlier in the day before the show where Gene and Paul are kind of being jerks to each other in this interview. <laughs> yeah, it was wild to see it. Kind of awkward to watch. But, um, yeah, so it was uh, it was an interesting year. And, you know, I know we're going to try to change some of your minds if you're... Yeah, we've got some Kiss coming up a little bit later on, yeah, so Kiss stay tuned. If you're open-minded, I think you'll dig this episode. So, for sure. So, uh, first thing, we, Jan- let's get into January. January 6th, this was kind of a new story. Detroit, Michigan, at, actually at Cobo Hall, I did research. Nancy Kerrigan is clubbed on the right leg by an assailant under orders from figure skating rival Tanya Harding's ex-husband. That was crazy. What a huge news story that was because it was just an insane thing that you wouldn't expect to happen. Right. Violence and figure skating. They don't usually go together. No, full contact figure skating. It <laughs> <laughs> was a big deal. Uh, the media was all over that. It was a yeah, very big deal. But yeah, it was at Cobo Hall where it really? happened. Yeah. Wow, I never knew that. So, yeah. I don't think Ace Fraley was anywhere to be found. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, um, January 11th, the Super Highway Summit is held at UCLA's Royce Hall. It's the first conference to discuss the growing information superhighway and is presided over by U.S. Vice President Al Gore. Oh, yeah, that's where he invented the Internet. Right. That's now, right. See, there's the proof. It all comes together. Back when you, we used to call it the information superhighway. I haven't heard that term in years. No, that's wild, you know, because 94, the, the Internet was really starting to get accessible to people right you know where people were like everyday people were were starting to use it right yeah so um well i guess let's get into some music here um king's x released dog man on january 18th of 1994 this was their fifth studio album it was released uh as i said january 18th produced by brendan o'brien uh this had a heavier production than the records they had done with sam taylor before that um 94 was a kind of an interesting year for King's X. They uh, ended up opening for Pearl Jam, Motley Crue, and Typo Negative that year. I was going to say, because Brennan O'Brien is known for producing a lot of Pearl Jam stuff, too. Right, so they became good buddies with them, and they also performed at Woodstock. They were the surprise of Woodstock. Yeah, People were talking them. about them for weeks after that show. Yeah. So uh, it's too bad it didn't translate into better success for them, because they, uh, they're a fantastic band, and this track proves it. Yeah, King's X, definitely a band, you know, underrated for the most part, but appreciated by both, like, the new alternative bands coming yeah. around in, in the 90s and as well as the more established bands, you know, before yeah. that as well. These guys cross-generational they're, like that. They're kind of like every musician's favorite band, you know. They're, right. They're, they're not general public didn't embrace them like they should have been deserved, but... Man, you ask most magi- magi- magicians, David Copperfield most, loves most, King's X. Most but, uh, musical musicians. Yeah, I heard Doug that's Henning what, doesn't That's what King's X are. Yeah, but they, uh, yeah, if you ever get the chance to see King's X live, see them, they're awesome. Do it. Yeah, so uh, what do we got going on I don't on know, next? any like uh, huge catastrophes or anything going oh, on in 94? Yeah. Kiss fans will uh, know this if you read Peter Chris's book. He was in the middle of this. January 17th, the 94 Northridge Earthquake. Had a, it was a magnitude 6.7 hit the San, San Fernando Valley of Los Angeles at 4.31 a.m., so it woke a Dang. bunch of people up, killed 72 people, and left 26,000 people homeless. I remember footage of that on TV when it, when it happened, you know, and bridges just ripped apart and cars flipped over, and, man, it was a disaster. But that's not the catastrophe I was talking about. <laughs> You're talking about Lorena Bobbitt? Oh, don't remind me. Yeah, Lorena Bobbitt was found not guilty by reason of insanity on charges charges of mutilating her husband John and if you don't know she cut his dick off yes she did yeah so uh, i get she to, crazy i get to resurrect a 20 year old joke i haven't told in forever yeah let's hear it 
Did you hear John Bobbitt got a new job? No. Yeah, he's working for Snap-on Tools. Oh. Tip your waitress. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Haven't told that joke since 1994. Yeah, you can yeah. put that one back in the vault. Yeah, and people will be glad that I hadn't told that in 20 years. Right on. All right, so. Well, let's keep on moving with the music here. This one came out on January 26th in the United States. I mean, it was previously released in Europe the year before in 1993. Of course, in 92, Ronnie James Dio and Vinnie Apice, they returned to Black Sabbath to record the Dehumanizer album and tour on it. But uh, after a while, it came down to that pivotal moment. We talked about this back in our Other Side of Black Sabbath episode where Dio says, "Uh uh-uh, we're Black Sabbath, we don't open for Ozzy. Yep. And he left, you know, and he left the band. And in, in uh, 1994, he comes back to Dio with Strange Highways. He brings Vinnie Apice with him. He's got Jeff Pilsen from Dokken on bass and Tracy G on guitar. You know, this album begins a big change in style for Dio, where he kind of steps away from the Dungeons and Dragons lyrics into something a little more fucking scary. Yeah. Real life. Yeah, that and that album, that's a very underrated album. Yeah, you I, know, it's it's a big step away from what Dio's 80s albums were, and it received mixed reviews from longtime fans. But in re- retrospect, those couple of albums that came out in that period of time in the uh, mid-90s, really good stuff. Oh, absolutely. Overlooked. Yeah, and it, there's a, I wanted to give us a little bit of props because we got props from them on the guys from Focus on Metal interviewed the guy that did the keyboard work on the Strange Highways album tour. Yeah. And uh, it's a really interesting interview, and he, he has a good recollection of that era for Dio and what he was like and what it was like to work with him. Um, and because they also gave us props for our Gary Corbett interview at the same time. So, oh, nice. So it, we're so, we're complimenting keyboards, yeah, huh? Yeah, and Paul Taylor was a good interview, so we got to keep interviewing keyboard Heck players. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, it was really awesome. Uh, I'm going to interview Ray Manzarek. I'm going to get a Ouija board out. Mm. But um, yeah, so that was Dio, man. That was a that was a great album. And I had a couple of people when we first mentioned doing '94, they were like, "Of course you're going to talk about Dio, Strange Highways." Well, yeah, don't worry about. Of course it. we are. Yeah. So um, we're the, we're in the United States. If we were somewhere else, we'd have to wait till the we do a, a review of 93. Yeah, that's but since, true. But since we're in the States, <laughs> of course we are. Yeah, last, we'll, we'll find a way. Yeah, last night I'm like, did that get released in 94? It says 93 on Trust here. me, 94. <laughs> so, we're including Dio. Yeah, so, um, and this is a song, I, I know we don't typically play singles on the show, but uh, this song definitely uh, deserves some recognition.
the light rock sounds of prong. Man, I love that song. I never forget when I first heard that. I was like, this is amazing. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, prong was formed in '86 in New York City. They released eight studio albums. Singer Tommy Victor was the sound man for CBGBs. Right on. Uh, that was produced by Terry Date, who did a lot of Pantera stuff. That's so right. That's where you get that really hardcore, crunchy sound. Terry Date's making some money in 1994. Yeah, he was. He made a lot of money through the 90s. That song actually became popular after the video was shown on Beavis and Butthead. And yeah. They loved it, so everyone else started loving it, too. You know, Beavis and Butthead <laughs> could make or break you in the early 90s. Yes, they could. Wow. But, uh, yeah, that song always takes me back to... We would have band practice on Friday nights at my friend's house, and then we would all get basically fucked up and then go down to a truck stop at 2 in the morning, eat eat our dinner at 2 in the morning, and play Mortal Kombat 2 on the video game machine. Wow. So, yeah, that's, I immediately go back to that place when I hear that song. That's always that funny place in life where you're you're not quite an adult yet to be able to go to the bars. You right. Know, you're, you go to the truck stop. You're, yeah, you're too old <laughs> to hang out and do little kids stuff. You know, you're in, in vertigo there. That's that's kind of you know a testament to a lot of these kind of this kind of music we're playing here. Today. And we, we solved that problem by hiring a singer that was 21. Uh huh. Yeah. He's guy like, couldn't sing, but he could buy beer. Yeah, that was all, that was all that mattered. He was like, he was like, yeah, I'll try out for you guys. And I was like, how old are you? Twenty one. I was like, okay, you're hired. Nice. <laughs> First like, stop, gas like, station. Like David Lee Roth, you got a PA, you're in. Right. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, oh yeah, I have the next pick too. Yeah, you got a couple in a row here. Yeah, I do. Um, well, we talk, we played Dio a minute ago at, right after he left Sabbath. Well, you know, so Sabbath scrambles and has to reform a different lineup. Yeah. And they get to back together with. Um, Tony Martin and uh, Bobby Rondinelli on drums because Dio right and Vinny Appice leave. And um, they released Cross Purposes on January 28th. It was their 17th studio album. This only peaked at 122 on the Billboard 200. Not not very highly regarded by most of their fans. Um, you know, I I have a hard time finding a lot of positive reviews for this album. But as we has on, said on the other Sabbath episode, there are some good moments, and this is one of them. track called eyewitness it's a good song yeah i'm glad we did that episode where we looked at the other side of black sabbath it gives me a new perspective on all that yeah so I, you know, tony martin is you know he's always going to probably go third in line among people's favorites for sabbath's vocalist but he's a good singer man i mean he's you know you can't uh fault the guy for the position he's in it's kind of hard to compare although well, I don't know you. What do you you like uh, the born again album i like so born you, again yeah, yeah so i was yeah. thinking third or fourth you know somewhere in there Nah, no vocal acrobatics for Mr. Martin. No. So um, that brings us into February. Yeah, we're in February, and uh, this is a uh, we have a lot of listeners that are Twisted Sister fans. Shit, yeah. And uh, got a couple of hosts that are too. True. And this is an album that completely passed me by, along with most of the general public when it came out. I remember the band name, right? But I never bothered looking into it. I was too busy with grunge and other stuff at the time. I had a buddy that had it, and it was. I remember it being awesome, but I also remember it being hard to find. Well, you know, I saw this listed when we did the research, and I was like, well, I have to check this out and see what it what it sounds like. And I was pleasantly surprised. Dee Snider forms a band called Widowmaker. Yeah, because Twisted Sister's dead and gone oh, by yeah. this point. And um, he forms it with Al Petrelli, who ended up playing in Megadeth for a while. Yeah. Uh, Mark Russell and Joey Franco. Um, they were In 94, they released their second album after the Blood and Bullets debut. And this is the title track. This is Stand By For Pain. Stand by for pain. 
thoughts with Buckethead. Don't miss the season finale of Seinfeld. You're going on Regis and Kathy Lee? Kramer takes his coffee table book on tour. I'm telling you, this guy's bunkers. <laughs> and the season finales continue when Frazier asks that age-old question. Are you in love with Daphne? Two must-see season finales, NBC Tonight. All right, welcome back to the Decibel Geek Podcast, where we are exploring the rockin' world that was 1994. And just to give you a little snapshot of time that we're looking at, let's take a look at what's going on in the world of television in 94. One of the first major things that we can talk about for TV is the uh, 100th episode of The Simpsons. It's still going strong. And still growing strong today, all these years later. That's um, Richard Dawson returns to the family feud after nine years. Hmm, I remember that. Luke Carl and I were just talking about <laughs> how he was the greatest game show host of all time. Yeah, he was, and he got, got to kiss chicks all the time. Yeah, he did. He was smart. <laughs> Um, here's some interesting stuff. HBO, Cinemax, and Showtime implement voluntary pay TV guidelines that make them exempt from FCC guidelines that govern free TV programs, freeing them up to feature strong language and nudity. Skinamax. Hello, Skinamax. Yep. Heck yeah. I mean, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> uh, Direct TV is launched in 1994. Uh, the top-rated shows in 1994, of course, we were just heard it, Seinfeld. Uh, home Improvement right up there. Grace Under Fire. Roseanne, still popular in 94. NYPD Blue. Love that show. Murder, She Wrote. Mad About You. And two brand new debut shows by the names of ER and Friends. Yeah. Huge. NBC had the uh, stranglehold on everyone else at that time. Yeah, they did. huge. Other big debut TV shows for 1994. Oh, some of Chris's favorites here. Touched by an Angel and Ellen. How'd you know? <laughs> Inside the Actors Studio debuts in 94. My So-Called Life, Party of Five. You know, those type shows. <laughs> Chicago Hope and the debut of the superstar, Barney the Dinosaur. I'd rather forget about that. Yeah, some of my favorites from 94. Space Goes Coast to Coast. I used to love watching that. Me too. That was always funny as hell. Remember The Head on MTV? Mm-hmm. Man, that was pretty yeah. cool, too. And The Tick. Who couldn't love The Tick? Yeah, The Tick. Uh, goodbye in 1994 to In Living Color, Star Trek Next Generation, and Dinosaurs. Mm. Not the mama. Not a fan of the Star Trek stuff. No. Never have been. That was tolerable at the time, I guess. Bores me to tears. Yeah. yeah well, my brother disagrees. Goodbye to those shows, and uh, goodbye to Vince Neil. Yeah, Motley Crue puts out their self-titled album and on uh, March 15th. And uh, I put up a thing on the Facebook page earlier this week asking if people thought they should have changed their name for the album. And the overwhelming majority said, no, it's Motley Crue and it's yeah. just a great album. Yeah, take it as so, it is. I do wonder if it would have had a better shot had it been a different name. Yeah, I don't know. I, I got to think maybe. You know, if it would have been looked at and considered a separate entity from Motley Crue, would yeah. it have been more acceptable? Because there was just so many Motley Crue fans who were like, no Vince Neil, no way. Yeah. You know, and I think Vince Neil, his album came out not too long or two before or this and was a little more successful, I think. Yeah, it's um But probably not by much. Yeah, no, it, it hurt all all parties for them to not be together, even though the album that Karabi did with them was awesome. You know, Amazing. it uh came out March fifteenth. The working title of it was Till Death Do Us Part. And I heard Karabi was even going to get a tattoo called Till Death Do Us Part, which I'm sure he's happy he didn't do that. Yeah. Although I guess. maybe he did. I don't remember if he did or not. I just know he's thinking about it. Um this was the first album after they signed a $25 million contract with Elektra. Yeah. and um, That's probably got a little something to do with the fact that they couldn't change the name. Probably. They said, we, we signed Motley Crue to $25 million, not whatever this other band. Right. Um, produced by Bob Rock, which explains the real thick guitars and yeah. you know heavy drum sound. Uh, debuted at number seven on the Billboard 200, so it debuted well, but it got zero support from Elektra because the CEOs were, were they were having a CEO change and there was a lot of infighting with the record company. Yeah. So there was a whole lot of drama and basically didn't give this album a chance. But Well, uh, as this episode goes on between this week and next week, you're going to see all kinds of changes starting to happen in the, rec in the uh, recording industry. That's true, but here's a little taste of the Motley Crue album.
I love it, man. Awesome. Amazing album from the first song to the last track, end to end. Yeah. Awesome. If you haven't, if at this point you still haven't listened to this album from front to back, you owe it to yourself. Yeah, you do. You're and, missing out if you and haven't. The EP they put out after it too. The Quaternary. Quaternary. Yeah. Quaternary. Yeah. Baby Kills is a great song. Yeah. So yeah, that's uh that's the Motley Crue album. You know, a lot of people weren't clamoring for a Motley Crue album in '94, and uh, certainly not a lot of people were clamoring for an Ingve Malmsteen album in 1994 either. Um, Never the, the song the album the seventh sign comes out on March fifteenth. It's his seventh studio album. Um, features Michael Vissera on vocals, who has sang with Loudness, Obsession, and Animetal. And have you ever heard of Animetal? No. They are a group. They're a metal band that does cover songs of Japanese animation theme songs. Oh wow! And they wear makeup too. But um, and Obsession um, is a band that Ronnie James Dio, in an interview I recently heard, was giving a lot of props to uh, back during the uh, Strange Highways tour. Hmm. And uh, I actually met Michael Vissera at the Queensryche with Jeff Tate show last year. Nice. So it's kind of a weird, Boy, it's it a small all, it, world It thing. all comes full circle And also, here. I have to link it to Kiss, this album was engineered by Jeff Glixman, who um, worked on Paul Stanley's 78 solo album. the fury uh, no <laughs> not a Ingve fan i'm not well no i'm not i'm not furious yeah i like it that's good nothing to be furious about we never got that Ingve nirvana tour that we all hoped for back in 94 <laughs> just didn't because kurt you know because right. we'll get to that in a little while right yeah uh here's one for you talk about one guitar legend to another one on uh march 22nd this one comes out and it becomes the first thrash metal album to reach number one on the u.s billboard album charts you know I'm talking about Far Beyond Driven by Pantera. Recorded right here in Nashville. That's right, right here in Nashville, Tennessee, at a Berry Hill studio owned by Dime and Vinny's dad, Jerry Abbott. It's the uh, highly anticipated follow-up to 1992's Vulgar Display of Power, and that's kind of a testament here of how huge that album was to drive this one. I mean, this went to number one in its first week on sale. Amazing stuff. <laughs> just hard to imagine an album that freaking heavy being number one on Billboard. But, yeah, yeah, it happened, 1994. I remember the day it came out, and I went out and bought it the day it came out. Yeah, that cranked was it in my car. kind of a cool thing that maybe a lost art nowadays compared to back then oh, is like so awesome. when you would wait at the mall, you yeah. know, for the gates to open so you could go in and get that particular album yep. on its first day of release. You know, I, I see a lot of that, a lot of memories of some of these albums that we're talking about here today like that. Mm -hmm. And it was like a community thing because you weren't the only one there waiting in line to get right. that 
that new, you know, Pantera CD the day it came out. There's probably quite a few other people oh, yeah. there too. Oh, I, it was it sold briskly, and I remember, I remember buying. And I mentioned earlier about the prong thing going having. We would finish band practice and go to the truck stop. I was I had band practice scheduled the day this came out. And we went to band practice, and we got nothing done because I brought it, and we all sat around listening Listen to the album. To that. So yeah, that was a it was a that was a big album for a lot of us. Yeah, super heavy album. Um, I think the thing that helped it here was the cover of Sabbath's Planet Caravan. Yeah, you know that gave the radio stations and gave MTV a Pantera song that they could actually play. Yeah, it was more accessible. Right, yeah. big time. So then April rolls around, and uh, well, musically, I'd have to say probably the biggest story of the entire year on April eighth. Yeah, no doubt about it. Kurt Cobain found dead at his Lake Washington home, apparently of a single shot, single self-inflicted gunshot wound. Yeah, that's one of those stories that, you know, I think for our generation and people about our age get that, do you remember where you yep. were when Kurt Cobain, you know, was found dead? I do. I was standing you in know. my living room. Yeah, I remember too. You know, I was uh, coming out of work on lunch break listening to it on the radio. Oh, really? Yeah. I, know. I saw Kurt Loder announce it on MTV. Yeah. Yeah. Wild stuff, man. You know, and it's one of those things that you just can't understand it if you're not there. You're not a part of it. There's been so much speculation about it well, over the years. Well, they just reopened the case this week. Did they really? Yeah, 20 years later, they reopened the case. And I read that there were some photographs found that yeah. had never been released before too so here is a thing that this band you know made such an impact at their time you know and even here in 1994 the uh the unplugged album would come out yeah and that was so huge you know and it was probably the epitome of those unplugged shows well maybe for with the exception of kiss but yeah <laughs> but as far as like you know popularity everyone loved that yeah, album so big. much and and you know nirvana was such a you know, it was so huge, but it burnt out so fast that it kind of yeah. left a, a pretty deep scar where people, I don't think, will ever forget Kurt Cobain. No, I and, I, and Aaron and I have made no mistake that neither of us are, were huge Nirvana fans. I like Nirvana. I had Bleach before they were even popular. Yeah, I, I liked a handful of songs, but yeah. overall, I just... Great it, riffs, you know, good hooks. At times. You yeah. know, no wicked guitar I just, solos I never or nothing. Saw, no I, songs about getting laid and partying and getting drunk. <laughs> I never saw the godlike thing that a lot well, of people no, gave to him. No, that I mean, but that thing. didn't really come until later, until after this. Yeah, it was just... And that's what it goes Allison with Chains that. Give me Chains any day. Right, yeah. you know, and see, I don't know that... Why doesn't Lane Staley have the kind of the cultural impact the way Kurt Cobain does? I don't, know. I don't understand it. Well, Nirvana I, got there first, I guess, with, yeah. with Teen Spirit. I guess, but, you know, I think to me that Alice in Chains is a better band. Oh, I agree. Believe you know, me, they're my favorite of the, all the Seattle Lane bands. Staley, better songwriter. Mm -hmm. You know, in all ways, I prefer Alice in Chains over Nirvana, even though I like them both. Mm -hmm. But why is it because is a, is suicide more glamorous than overdose? Than diet drug drug Apparently, related issues. I don't know. They're all both, but both are really suicides when you get down to it. I mean, right. Lane pretty much killed himself with with the heroin. Right. You know. But so yeah. that was the big shocker of '94. I think music wise was the uh, apparent suicide of Kurt Cobain. Yeah, absolutely. So, Man, uh, something a little more upbeat. Yeah, let's is move what on to need. the happier we need subject. Something a little more upbeat, and I think I got it right here. Release on April eighth. This one goes to number four on the U.S. Billboard album charts, and man. This is a little different than a lot of stuff you'd heard before, and I'm talking about The Offspring when they come out with Smash. Now, this is their third studio album, but nobody's really heard of them before this. They, this album is worldly popular. It's number one in Australia and number three in Canada, and it's really off the strength of the singles come out and play and self-esteem. Right. You know, like people love death. those songs. <laughs> yeah. KROQ in Los Angeles were on the forefront of play and come out and play before anybody else. And, I mean, just it was huge in 94. Smash would go on over the years to sell 20 million copies worldwide.
see, in 1994, there was a little bit of a movement inside of rock, you know, that was outside of grunge and it was outside of everything else. It was kind of, I guess you'd consider it like mainstream punk. Yeah, it was kind of a middle ground between the grunge and the metal. It was kind of, yeah. yeah. It was, it was def- definitely its own thing. I think, you know, you talk about bands like the Toadies and Rancid, and I mean, you got to include Green Day in that. Green Day was yeah. freaking huge yeah. in 94. Yeah, Dookie comes out and it eventually sold over 20 million copies of it. I remember that year, and when Green Day came out, it just exploded. It was a lot of people I knew had that album. It was kind of a thing, and a funny thing in 1994, and I remember because I was there, because if you were you know, around the age of 20 or below, you yeah. thought Green Day, punk rock. Right. If you were 20 or above, you'd say, uh-uh, uh, that's not punk rock, kid. Recycled punk. That was the, the yeah. line drawn in the sand with those kind of bands. Yeah. You know, and the, they were all making huge money. Yeah. Speaking of somebody else making some big money, geez, I don't know if it was worth it, but he <laughs> made his money. He earned it. Yeah, Rodney King on April 19th was awarded $3.8 million for violations of his civil rights. Uh, if people don't remember, a bunch of L.A. cops pulled him over and beat the shit out of him. Beat the shit out of him. Yeah. And, you know, this is getting to be the time now where technology is changing. You know, this is this, camera. this is like really kind of like the first TMZ yeah. moment. You know, somebody saw this and said, well, geez, there's people all over the place doing this. We can make TV shows out of it. Right. You know, somebody caught the beating on camera and... Yeah. Here's your check, sir. I never really thought of it that way. It was kind of like the beginning of guerrilla journalism, you know, yeah. going out on the street and capturing stuff. And, you know, Rodney, yeah, he got his money, probably deserved his money, but, boy, he did not do himself any favors in the years after. He died died just a couple of years ago, actually. Yeah, he but, yeah. led a tough life, but he uh, got his money. Yeah. Just take one heavy ass beating like that for $3.8 million. Yeah. Wow. Mm. Speaking of other things moving and shaking in Los Angeles, oh, man, this is one of my favorite albums. This was so highly, highly underrated. I'm talking about Love Hate 1994 came out with an album called Let's Rumble. Now, here's the story with Love Hate. Now, after Jizzy Pearl's infamous Hollywood crucifixion incident, Columbia Records pretty much shit on everything the band tried to do. <laughs> um, they were offered a spot to open for Black Sabbath on tour. The record company wouldn't give them the cash to do it. Eventually, Columbia would gladly drop the band completely. That prompts uh, longtime guitarist Johnny Love to quit the band. So, what do you do? You know, what do you do in that situation? They're one of these bands that, you know, they're on their downside now. So, the bass player Skid sells his car to finance the recording and production of Let's Rumble. San Francisco guitar prodigy Darren Householder is brought in to replace Johnny Love, and the album is eventually released by BMI in the UK in 1993, but they refuse to release it in the US because, well, it's 1994, and they perceive that love-hate style bands are out of fashion and unmarketable. Pretty much. Sad times. Uh, The band's manager managed to get a copy of the CD or tape or whatever it is back then to KNAC in L.A. who put Spinning Wheel in rotation. So while they're rocking out in L.A., the rest of the world is not hearing, while well, the rest of the country is not hearing Love Hate, eventually a small label called uh, Caliber Records will give it a national release in 1994, but too little, too late. Yeah, that's a, that's a shame that they got buried like they did, but you know, it's, just, it's another tale of a lot of bands from Los Angeles that had the goods, but the record companies are just like, nope, this is over. This is not the last time you're going to hear this story yeah. in 1994. Record companies are very quick and flighty, just, well, time to move on. That's why, I don't know, i got to give credit to Europeans, because Europeans tend to, if they like something, they hold on to it. But America, yeah. we're, we're all about what's next. Yeah, it's, it's just the way it is. So uh, we go into May. Um, 
May 10th, Illinois, Illinois executes serial killer John Wayne Gacy by lethal injection for the murder of 33 young men and boys. That crazy-ass killer clown. Have you heard the story of, of what happened with him? Oh, it's awful. Oh, it's one of the most terrible. There's a movie called Gacy that... It's sickening. That it came out your documenting what he did, and he just lured these young boys in, basically raped them, killed them, and then buried them under his house. And he was still... He was a married family man yeah. at the time. Went on living his life like For nothing years. was happening, you know, until eventually the people The smell started, got so bad. Yeah, he had so many, you can only bury so many bodies oh. in your basement before the neighbors all start sniffing around. It's a creepy, Ugh. creepy story. Yeah, it's awful. Yeah, but... Just uh, terrible. There's a lot of death in 1994 for big stories. Yeah? And we'll get to more in a little bit. Yeah, that's true. Um, let's see here. I got another one for you. Aha, this one comes out on May 1st. This is Zach Wilde's first mainstream project away from Ozzy Osbourne because before Ozzy, Zach Wilde wasn't really that well known as, no. as somebody that would do stuff on his own. He was brought in. He was basically from the beginning known as Ozzy Osbourne's lead guitarist. Right. So in 1994, he gets a chance to branch out and he comes out with an album called Pride and Glory. You get yeah. when you mix Black Sabbath with Leonard Skinner. Yeah, <laughs> I wish pride he would, and glory. I really wish he would put that project back together again. Heck yeah, one James, more album. James Lomenzo on bass, Brian Tishy on drums, yeah. and Zach on lead vocals, lead rhythm guitars, harmonica, mandolin, banjo, piano. Yeah, it's great. Pretty play. much everything else. Great players there with uh, Lomenzo and Tishy. That's an amazing album. That's another one I I would highly recommend to just about anybody. Yeah, it's a it's a great album. I remember when it came out. It actually did the single did okay on radio too. I yeah. remember that. So um, all right, well I got uh, well this will be I got a couple picks left. Uh, Cheap Trick in on May fourth comes out with Woke Up with a Monster. Um, this was their first and only album released on Warner Brothers Records. Uh, peaked at one twenty three. Way too low for Cheap Trick, as usual. Yeah. Uh, produced by Ted Templeman of Van Halen fame. This was considered to be a grungier-sounding album, although I don't really hear that. Um, of course, Kiss Connection. The drum tech for this album was Chuck Elias, who was Peter Chris's drum tech in the 70s. Wow. Yeah, it's weird how I dig up shit Yeah, like where this. do you come up with that stuff? Album liner <laughs> notes. <laughs> so uh, this is probably one of my favorite songs on the album. This is You're All I Want to Do.
Well, 1994 or not, Cheap Trick is Cheap Trick. Yeah, sounds like it could have come out on any of their albums. Yeah, you know? for sure. Yeah. Hey, I got another one for you. Here's another Illinois band. Uh, these guys, man, I mean, they they seen the writing on the wall. This one came out on May 2nd, Uncharted in the U.S., talking about Enough's Enough, 1985. These guys, well, they ask for and are happily granted their release from their contract with Arista, and uh, they go to work for themselves. with a Honda Del Sol S, you'll only change the oil four times. That's great. You'll only tune it up one time. <laughs> cool. You might wash it 43 and a third times. Well, maybe less. But the best part is, weather permitting, you can take off the roof 912 times. With leadership leasing, a Honda Del Sol S is just $179 a month for just 30 months. Driving a sports car has never been so practical. When you really can't say what's on your mind, let the Casio Secret Sender 6000 do the talking. Because the Secret Sender can zap a secret message across any room. And the Secret Sender's packed with cool stuff, like a fun face maker, a built-in phone directory, and it's a TV remote control! Secret Sender, yeah! Secret Sender 6000, available at KB. All right, we're back in the final stretch of the year in review, 1994, right here on the Decibel Geek Podcast. And, man, you know, I think we've shown so far that 1994 has had some pretty damn good music. I think so. You know, and it's, it's, it's fun to look back on this because Aaron and I were young and had our whole lives ahead of us at this time. And yeah. it's interesting to listen, especially that uh, Casio message sender commercial. That's pre-cell phones and pre-text messaging. Yeah. So that was like not, an amazing not invention. Not too far off. Yeah, that was the very early stages of that kind of thing. And then that Del Sol commercial, I included that because that was a car where it was a convertible, but you had to like pull off the roof. Yeah. And store the roof in the trunk. It was, did not go over well. <laughs> and they were pieces of shit. <laughs> so I found that on YouTube, and I'm like, yeah, I got to do that. That's wild. Looked cool, drove like shit. Right. Yeah. Well, we talked about the big news story of 1994 being Kurt Cobain's uh, apparent suicide, but uh, overall, I think, you know, and we talked about TV coverage, you want to talk about big TV events, you can't leave this out. Now, on June 12th, uh, Nicole Brown Simpson and Ronald Goldman are murdered outside the Simpson home in L.A. Um, You know, O.J. ends up being, and you know, then O.J. was under suspicion, and uh, him and his friend Al Cowlings on the 17th flee from police and his white Ford Bronco in a, a low-speed low chase. chase. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, ended at O.J.'s house in, in uh, Brentwood, L.A., and uh, he surrendered and, as everyone knows, became like the trial of the century, and right. he eventually was acquitted. 
Um, I'll never forget that seeing the white Bronco oh, yeah. low speed chase another, on TV, you know, because it was on all the channels. Yeah, another one of those you remember where you were moments. Yeah, we for were at sure. my aunt and uncle's house in Memphis, and we had just gotten out of the pool and walked was, in, and there it was. I was at a good friend of mine's house. Their parents were gone. We were over there drinking beer and shooting pool in the basement, and that's yeah. all that was on TV. Yeah, it, was it like, dominated the coverage. On? It was a big deal. And then, like, I actually watched a thing. Um, there was a special about it the other day because it's been 20 years. You know, this is that's another reason we wanted to do 94 is it's been 20 years. And um, they had an interview with uh, the guy that was like the negotiator on the phone with OJ while he's in the Bronco. Yeah. And they released the tapes of it. So you can listen to the conversation. And oh, he, wow. he absolutely was going to shoot himself. He was going to get to the house and he was going to kill himself. Like he had a gun in his mouth. That's wild. And you can hear Al Cowlings once they get to the house screaming, no, OJ, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. It was... It's really intense to listen to. Like, he was totally going to kill himself. That's wild. He might know? consider thinking that he probably should have. I don't know. The way things turned out, it I mean. It was nuts. You know, who, nuts. who knows? I mean, because it, it will, we'll probably cover it more when we get into, like, we do a 1995 year in review. But right. this was the very beginning of that. And like you said, you know, trial of the century because so oh, many people were wrapped up. I in was, that. too. And that was, I think, one of the first big televised trials. And, you know, nowadays... It's a, it's a normal occurrence, you know. You oh, got yeah. your Jody Arias's mm-hmm. and your and the Tot Moms and yeah. all that stuff, you know. And it happens all the time now. But that yeah. was the first big one where everybody was oh, yeah. interested in the trial. Me itself. and my father bonded over the trial. Really? Yeah, because we um the you know, we'll get more into this into the '95 year in review, but in '95 is that's when the trial was going on, and I was in co- it was my first year of college. Oh, it's easy for a couple of Chiefs fans to hate OJ. Simpson, well, he wasn't. Huh? This was before I was a Chiefs fan. <laughs> no, but he um. He was he worked from home. He had a home office, and um, I would come home on the weekends, and we would talk about the trial, and we would watch hours of footage of it. And uh, yeah, it's a real time capsule thing. I still have a VHS cassette around here somewhere that has like three hours of the OJ. It has the, a couple hours of OJ coverage and the verdict. And on that same tape is Kiss on MTV Unplugged. Wow. So, yeah. Yeah, that is. That's a time capsule. Yeah, it is. So, yeah, because all, all that was going on at the same time. But that's 95, right. not 94. Right. Well, speaking of Kiss, you know, in 1994, they've got the Kiss My Ass. Kiss, uh, classic Kiss Regrooved comes out on June 21st. Right. Now, this is various artists playing tribute to the hottest band in the world, Kiss. Kiss doing a tribute album to themselves. More or less, yeah. You know, this paid, album gets a bad paid, rap in my paid opinion. Paid-to-pay paid tribute. I like kind of this thing. album. I do, too. There's some good stuff on there. I mean, it includes Anthrax, Extreme, Lenny Kravitz, along with Stevie Wonder. Yeah. That's strange. Garth Brooks. Yeah, Garth Brooks. I mean, that was huge. Dinosaur Juniors on there, the Lemonheads, Gin Blossoms, and a band called Shandy's Addiction. You know, and if you're not in the know, you might ask yourself, who the hell is Shandy's Addiction? It's like a little super group of yeah, metal well, bands from the 90s. One-time super group, including Maynard James Keenan from Tool, Tom Morello from Rage Against the Machine, Billy Gould from Faith No More, and uh, Brad Wilk on drums, also from Rage. One day we'll be in Sabbath. 
I like it, you know, and a lot of people, I know a lot of Kiss fans just did not like that cover because they thought it was strayed way too far, but I, that's what I like about the Kiss My Ass album is that it had bands that weren't afraid to stray too far from the original. Version. Right, and they were given that, that's what it's that for. freedom, that little bit of a leash, you know, to be able to get out there and, and kind of make things their own. I always liked the extreme song that they did, Strutter, and then they, they had like the, the medley, medley in the yeah. middle, and uh, Anthrax, you know, their version of the, and of that's, the of She is that's just straight stellar. up, it's just heavier, but yeah, um, yeah I, I like a everything and a hell i love the x cover of uh, the classical version of black diamond i think yeah. it's awesome i mean and and the greatest dinosaur junior song ever yeah <laughs> <laughs> the only one by the band i've ever really truly liked you oh, know really? and of course the cover you know has got the the messed up ace makeup it's got the family with kiss makeup on and aces is messed up that. you know and that was always strange to me well and the first inkling of a possible reunion on the inside tray with the yeah. letter from paul and gene to ace and peter saying we couldn't be here without you that it said, where it said we miss you even. I think. Yeah, and that was that. I remember a lot of people were like, oh, yeah, because people have been now. looking for things to be able to read into about a Kiss that reunion was a, for a while. That and was that a clear was, sign. Yeah, this was definitely Kiss nostalgia on the rise. Like you say, you know, partnering up with Garth Brooks and yeah. you know some of the other bands on that list that are on that album. You know, real big time bands for in that 1994. Era. Sure. You know, so Kiss was good, or somebody was good at getting somebody that was pretty important to 1994 these bands to play on this album somebody that's real current you know yeah. and popular okay well i got one more pick to go okay and this one this if you're just more of a straight ahead rock and roll fan this is not going to be your cup of tea but for someone who was 17 18 around this era i love this band yeah me too this is a band called helmet and this band really stood out from the pack in 1994 i mean they they had a metal sound, but they just had something different about them that made them, they stood out from the crowd. And uh, this was their third album. It was an album called Betty. came out on June 21st. The follow-up to Meantime, which is a really big album. Oh, man, I love that album. And um, this song, this album peaked at number 45 on the Billboard 200, and this song also appeared on the Crow soundtrack. Yeah, that's right. So uh, this, this song had a little bit of coverage that year and uh, actually played in a band, and we played this song. This is a song called Milk Toast. Love me some helmet. Good stuff. Paige Hamilton, man. Heck some yeah. great guitar playing. I love Such that song. Such a thick groove yeah. to it all. And man. then the, the jam where they speed it up at the end of the song is incredible. Yeah. yeah that's that's a great song. I yeah, if you, song. if you don't know Helmet, you need to check it out. Trust yeah. me. Excellent. Band. You know, speaking of that, talking about all these bands that we've played and gave you guys samples of today, you know, we want you to go to Amazon.com. We want you to buy music, support these artists. Yeah, this was back in 1994, but these guys are all still around. They need to make their money, so support them. Yeah. The best way you can do that is go to www.decibelgeek.com. Click on the Amazon link and through our site it's going to take you straight to Amazon you buy all these albums support all these great artists and by doing that through the website you're actually supporting us a little bit too and we could use the cash yeah we could <laughs> and if you yeah even if you, and if you just go straight to the show notes for the thing I'll have I'll have Amazon store links for every single one of these artists yeah so support the bands support the show Trust us, we really do need the money to keep this going. Yeah, that's true. Um, we're going we're gonna to wrap things up this week for 1994. This is just part one. You know, we've got another whole six months to go, and things really kind of pick up for part two, so we got a lot of great stuff coming to you next week. Um, I've got one more to go before we get on out of here. 
This is a band I really, really like. This one came out on June 28th. It was produced by Chris Goss from Masters of Reality at the infamous Sound City Studios in uh, Van Nuys, California. I'm talking about Desert Rockers' Caius. Yeah, the uh, precursor to Queens of the Stone Age. That's right. The album's called Welcome to Sky Valley. It was, uh, it's a follow-up to 1992's critically acclaimed Blues for the Red Sun. It was recorded while with Dolly Records as it was going to be titled Pools of Mercury. And then Dolly ends up getting purchased by Elektra. And a lot of, a lot of upheaval going on in, radio, in uh, record companies at, at this time. We're going to find out it more about that. It would only get worse. Yeah, it gets worse in part two you know, and years to come after this. Um, you know, the, the album's known as Welcome to Sky Valley. The label changes would make this album sit on the shelf for an entire year before it's released in 1994. So we're going to close things out this week for, with a little taste of some Caius right here. We'll be back for part two next week. And until then, we'll see you later. This is Caius with Gardenia. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.